Cool. Hey, everyone. Um, it's great to be with you guys tonight. Um, and yeah, really just want to start, I guess, by saying thank you to everyone um, for your support, particularly over the last year and then um, entering into this new role. Um, it's just been really cool to see God's hand in, in and grace and just everyone here's support and uh, love and prayers as well. Um, a lot of you guys know sort of the story of of me and ministry over the last couple of years and, and uh, I used to work at a school and the job as associate pastor opened up and I said, no, I'm not going to do that and then ended up doing it. And then, and then this, this role, I suppose, opened up last year and I said, no, I'm not going to do it and then yeah, here we are. So it's God just sort of chips away and gets what he wants, I guess. Um, and, but, but there's like a long process that I went through um, with that in, in transition and um, yeah, the church as well, we've been in transition and, and changing and it's just cool the deep work that God can do in those, in those spaces and, and he's doing a work in all of our lives in forming us and shaping us uh, for what he wants to do. Um, and I'm excited and I'm really excited just because he's at work here and, and he has a heart for us in this place and, and for Kalanga and this region and just to keep following him and keep being open to him and, and like we still are in transition, there's still more change and there's still more growth and we're still open and still need to pray. Um, but it's exciting just to keep going forward together as well. So um, we're going to finish off this series that we started a, a couple of weeks ago on um, repentance. Um, we're calling it Chuck a Yui Mate. And uh, we've had a couple of weeks and this is sort of the last week. Um, and just to sort of recap really, really quickly, we're kind of trying to reframe a word that kind of has a lot of negative connotations, like when, when we don't really use the word repent very often, and if you hear it, it kind of might just be like, oh, that doesn't sound fun, like that sounds terrible. <laughs> um, but actually, in the Bible, it's, it's really important, um, and actually we talked about how it actually leads to joy. It's a lot of the verses that are involved in repentance actually have a common theme of joy. Um, maybe not always comfort, there's some discomfort in the process, but the end result is, is joy and forgiveness and life. And we talked last week about how repentance is not, is not really about feeling bad. Sometimes it has connotations of it just means you feel terrible. But there may be a sense of feeling sorrow. We talked about godly sorrow. Um, but what is key is the change. Um, and it's the, the key is really a change of mind. That The word repent or repentance in the Greek actually means a change of mind, a change of thinking. And that results in a change of direction. Um, we talked about that, that last week, that we might go off track, go down a wrong path, and the key is not just to feel really bad but keep going down that path, but actually get to a place where we turn around and there's, there's a change in thinking, there's a change in direction, there's a back on the right path with God. But I want to sort of take that idea tonight and, and sort of think, well, how that could maybe be misunderstood. Because sometimes you kind of can say things or, or it's, it's so hard, preaching is so hard because you have half an hour to say something that's so big and not be misunderstood. <laughs> and it's so easy to be misunderstood or go too far on, on one thing and, or, or people hear something that you didn't mean to say. So it's, it's good to be able to kind of say something and then almost qualify it or kind of bring it back on track and just constantly kind of be adjusting. And I suppose we said last week that, that repentance is about change of mind, change of direction. It involves change. But one way we could misunderstand that is to start to think that it's really all on us. That, that we have to change ourselves. And we might start to think like that easily. We might think, well, I've got this problem in my life or um, this thing I'm not really happy about or I'm not really following God the way that I'd like to and I need to repent and just get my act together. 
I need to just fix myself. I just need to sort myself out because I can do it if I just really try hard, if I just really work hard. It's kind of this kind of self-confident, um, self-focus that we need to perform. It's, it's on us. And it's true that we have a part to play, but if we put all confidence in ourselves, we get into danger. And the, one of the main dangers with this is if we, if we say, well, we need to fix ourselves, we need to turn around, we need to sort our lives out, we need to get things back on track, um, if we're actually successful with that, the thing that happens is we become proud because we did it. And there's all these other people that can't do it and, and what do they need to get their act together? And we become proud and judgmental. And, and actually, like the, we were going to look at a story where these, these guys called the Pharisees around Jesus' time, and, and they're like that. The other thing is, often it, it, it doesn't work in the deep level. It only works on the surface level. It works that we can look like we've got it together. We can maybe stop doing things that people can see, but it doesn't necessarily mean our hearts are changed. So it's kind of external, and, and then it leads to pride and judgment. That's if, that's if we put confidence in ourselves to change and fix ourselves. The other thing that might happen, though, is we sort of hear this message of, oh, well, repentance involves change. We might start to think, well, I've tried to change, and it didn't work. Uh, I, I tried to stop this thing, or I tried to start loving people this way, or I started to follow God, and it just, I just failed, and I failed again, and I failed again, and I just can't do it. And we actually put confidence in ourselves that it's on us to fix and change ourselves, but then we actually just lose all confidence in ourselves because we can't do it. We actually despair. We actually just feel lost. We feel overwhelmed. We feel like, well, how are we ever going to have any hope? How are we going to change if, if, if it's all up to us and we can't do it? And, and maybe then we just start to say, well, I'm not, that's not fun. Like, I'm done with this. Like, I'm not interested in trying anymore and just give up hope. Maybe give up on God. Maybe just go down a path away from him. And maybe these are sort of two different responses or misunderstandings of that if, we, if we're putting confidence in ourselves. Either confidence in ourselves to perform and we perform, but it leads to pride. Or confidence in ourselves to perform and we fail and it leads to despair. And... The interesting thing is that, that it's so easy for us to sort of start to think like that or to think in a way that's focused on ourselves. But actually, the story of the Bible and some stories that Jesus tells actually just totally wipes out that way of thinking. It says that whole way of thinking is just wrong. Uh, there's actually a whole different way to think about the issue. I'm going to tell you this story that Jesus tells, um, it's, you've probably heard it many times before, that it's in Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells three parables, um, very famous, and we're going to kind of look through them to sort of frame this a bit differently, but it's interesting, the start of uh, when he starts to talk about these, we kind of almost see these two types of people um, present. We see Jesus in this, in this Luke 15, it says, now the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around to hear Jesus. So Jesus is speaking. Jesus starts his ministry speaking a message of repentance. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. It means turn around, change what you're thinking, start believing what I'm saying and following me. He calls people to change. Jesus doesn't just come and say, it's fine, everything you're doing is all good, like God just is going to tolerate everything. He doesn't. He calls people to change and to repent. But we actually see that the people who, who actually are coming to him are actually the people who kind of maybe had given up hope. Or everyone thought that they just can't do it. They can't fix themselves. They're the tax collectors. They're the sinners. They're the ones that are sort of pushed to the outside. They're the ones that everyone disregarded. But actually, Jesus is welcoming them. And actually, they're actually turning and believing in him. 
But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. They, they were upset about this. They complained about Jesus. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. These guys, are, they've got confidence in themselves. They've, they've kept the law. They're seeking God. They're doing the right thing. And there's these sinners who they need to get their act together if, if Jesus is going to hang out with them. It's this, this sort of pride and this judgment. The focus is on either get your act together or, or um, yeah, yeah, basically, if you, if you can't, then you're not welcome. And we see that the story that Jesus tells is very, very different. He starts to tell stories about um, things and people that are lost. But what I want you to notice as I read through the story, the emphasis is not on the person. The emphasis is actually on the character that represents God in the story. So I'm going to read these stories. You've probably heard them before. It says this in Luke 15 verse 3. Jesus told them this parable. So he's speaking to the religious leaders who are sort of upset that he's hanging out with sinners. And Jesus says, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. Jesus tells a story but the story is not about a sheep. The story is about a shepherd who has lost his sheep. That the focus of the story is actually on the shepherd. The shepherd's got all these sheep. One goes missing and goes astray. Then he leaves the 99. He goes after and he pursues and he seeks that one sheep that's gone missing. And because it was lost and he cares about it and he finds it, then he has this party and he, and he celebrates because what it belongs to him, what he's, he's seeking and wanting is found. And then Jesus says, this is actually what's going on. He says, I tell you in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. He's saying, actually, there's these people who are turning to follow Jesus. And Jesus is this seeking shepherd who's seeking them. This is what God is like. God is the one who's seeking and actually, these people are turning. So there's this cause for celebration and joy. In that, in that sort of first framework we were talking about to start with, where it's either like confidence in self and succeed, or confidence in self and fail, is it, it puts the emphasis on ourselves, and we're the main player. The activity is with us, and God's kind of over here, and he might just be sitting still or static, and we've got to either get to him and we succeed, or we don't, and we fail. And Jesus flips it. He says, actually, God's the active player. Actually, God's the one who's lost what is, is precious to him. And he's the one who is seeking. He's the one who is searching. He is the one who is coming. And when people respond to that, there's cause for joy and celebration. So it keeps going. It tells another story about a, about a lost coin. Suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? When she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is more rejoicing in heaven in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So similar story. This time, ten coins, not a hundred, ten. And, and the active player is, is the searching saver. I'm using alliteration tonight. I don't use it very often, but I'm using it tonight. So this, this woman loves and, and cares for her and, and isn't just going to say, oh, well, I've lost one of my coins. It doesn't matter. She, she searches the house for it. She pulls apart everything. Um, I was talking to someone after this morning, and they were talking about their daughter. I don't know how to say these things. What are the things that Woolworths called? Ooshies? Ooshies? 
She has one of them that's actually like worth a lot of money, and she wanted to sell it to buy an iPhone, but she lost it. <laughs> so she stayed up late, searching the house, like pulling everything out. She wouldn't go to bed because she needed to find the missing Ushi or whatever. Like, like it's like that. Like, like she, this this woman is not going to sleep. She is pursuing this lost coin. The lost coin's not active, right? It's just sitting there. She's the active one. She's the one who is searching. She's the one who is pursuing. And if she finds it, she she celebrates greatly. You see the difference. Jesus keeps going then, and he starts to tell this story now about actual people. Like like obviously a, a a sheep is just sort of wandering. A coin is just sort of sitting there. But he starts to talk about two sons. He says this. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, "Father, give me my share of the estate." So he divided his property between them. So the story, um, in in this story, the father lets the son go, like he didn't have to do that. Like what what, what this son is doing is is quite offensive and and wrong to the father, but the father just lets him go. He gives him freedom. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. This this man goes. He leaves. He takes his father's money, and he squanders it. He has fun, but then it runs out, and there's a drought, and he gets to the bottom of the bottom for a Jew to be eating pig food. And looking after pigs is unclean. He, he, he's in a terrible state. And it says this: When he came to his senses, he said, "How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, 'Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants.'" So he got up and went back to his father. He, he, he is doing what we talked about in the first in the first message. That he gets to a place of just honesty and openness, and he's not saying, "I'm just going to get it all together. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to sort it out. I'm going to make some more money." And, and he's not saying he's going to come and justify himself to his father. He's actually coming and just wants to come back to his father and be with him and just receive whatever is offered to him. It says, "But while he was still a long way off." He's coming back. His father saw him, and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. So the son comes to a place of repentance, of change, and turning back to the father. And and the father is not there to to sort of discipline the son or reprimand the son or say, "How could you leave me? How could you do this? You need to earn it back." At all, the the slightest hint of him turning. To receive the father's love, and the father runs towards him, and running is is would be disrespectful for an older man this time. He just doesn't care what people think. He so much loves his son that he runs and pursues him. He's filled with compassion. Says then the son starts to give his speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, "Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet." 
Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. See, again, this story is not primarily a story about a, a, a son that made a mistake, that went off track and went down this wrong path and now needs to sort his life out and get back on track. That's not the story. The story is about a father who lost a son. The father who loves his son and lost him. Let him go. Didn't want to control him. Didn't reject him, but let him go and lost him. And then when he returns, this story is about a, a father being restored to his son, receiving what is most precious to him, what he loves, what he longs for. The central character really is, that, is the father and, and his, his heart of love that actually is longing and waiting for the son. We've called him the festive father. That he's not like just going to, he's not standing back in judgment saying like you haven't got it together enough. Is this the smallest hint of change, of turn, of openness, of response. And he's there to embrace. He's there to love. He's there to receive. He's filled with compassion. That means like greatly moved in the inward, like deep inward parts. It's like what the word means. It's like a deep inward moving towards his son of love. So these characters are active, are pursuing, are waiting. Because what is precious to them was lost. And they want it back. And Jesus sort of then takes a bit of a turn with the story. And he starts to... um, talk almost a bit more directly to the Pharisees. And he, he introduces this character of the older brother. And the older brother kind of represents the Pharisees in the way that they're kind of standing and looking down on these sinners coming to be with Jesus. He says this, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The brother's outside, doesn't really understand, and here's what's going on. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. For when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. He's got this posture of, of needing to have it together, of earning, of confidence in self. I've done the right thing. I deserve the right thing. This one hasn't. He's, he's failed. He doesn't deserve this. There's that, 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 that sort of framework of thinking. But the father's not operating that framework of thinking. The, fa- the father's operating, I've lost my son and he's been restored. There's reason for joy and celebration. And he actually even starts to plead with um, the older brother. And Jesus is, in a sense, even starting to plead with the Pharisees in this, in this story. It says, My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The, 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 the central character, the father, is waiting and looking for him to come home. And he celebrates with great joy when that happens. And we see that actually, in this story, the father's, you might sort of say, well, hang on, the father's not actually the active character. Like, the father's just waiting. He, he, yes, he runs to the son when he returns, but the father doesn't go to him once he leaves. But actually, 
in the story Jesus is telling, in some ways Jesus is telling it about himself, that Jesus actually left his father. He actually came to pursue the lost children that have, that have fallen away from the father. Jesus is going as the better brother who doesn't sort of stand back and sort of judge or be upset when, when lost children come home, who doesn't even just stay with the father, but actually goes and the Father and the Son come together by the Spirit and actually go to the lost. Jesus actually pursues. It's not just waiting, but he's actually active and coming. There's this other verse when, when Jesus is spending time um, with Zacchaeus, and at the end of it, it says this, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. See that Jesus is actually active. He's the better brother who leaves heaven, who comes to earth as a, as a baby, who lives life, who even goes to the cross to rescue and restore God's lost creation, lost people, who are not lost as in the sense that they just have despairing and no hope. They're just done all this. They're lost because they're precious to God and God values and wants them to be found. And that's us. That actually he pursues us. This paradigm is actually not the way that it works. This is not the story of the God of the Bible. It's, the story is not that we have to get it together and either succeed or fail and, and we have no hope. The story is that the central character of the story is actually God and his love, that he's seeking, that he's searching, that he's active, that he's pursuing. And if, if you've come to believe him, if you've come to know him, it's not because you figured it out. <laughs> you got it all together. You figured out what's right and what's true and you started doing the right thing. No, it's because he came to you and he called you and he revealed himself to you and you surrendered and you believed and you received. Jesus came. He's the active one. So repentance is not this thing that we put on ourselves that we've got to get it together. We've got to do it right. We've got to fix the issue. Repentance is actually surrendering to his pursuing, persistent, generous love. It's not, it's not on us. It's not a sort of building up, trying to fix and control and self-improve. It's much more a letting go and a change of mind as we stop operating out of that paradigm and start operating out of a paradigm with God at the center, with him being the active one, with his love pursuing and chasing and, and seeking us, and we come to a place of surrender where we let go, where we receive it, where we trust it. Maybe that's for the first time. Maybe we, we, before we come to Jesus, before we believe, we, we're resisting him, we live without him, and eventually come to a place where actually we believe, we, we surrender. We believe in Jesus and put our faith in him. But it doesn't, it's not just a one-time thing. There's, then there's a continual repentance in the sense of surrendering in deeper and deeper ways the parts of ourselves that, that resist God, the parts of ourselves that ignore him, the parts of ourselves that, that go back to this paradigm of we can do it ourselves, we can figure it out ourselves, and we sort of just think that he's over there when he's actually the active one and we're to surrender to him in deeper and deeper ways. There's this story um, and, a, and a poem um, called The Hound of Heaven. And actually describes God as a hound, like a, like a dog, um, that hounds would pursue and, and chase down rabbits. 
And, and this guy, Francis Thompson, wrote this, this poem um, a couple, about 150 years ago or so. And he um, grew up kind of in a Catholic family, and then he got a bit sick, and he became addicted to opiates. So he's a drug addict. And he ended up homeless, living in the streets, I think, around London. Um, and an awesome writer, though, eventually started writing poems that became incredibly famous. But he writes this poem, and in the poem... He um, uses a metaphor of describing God as a hound and that the hound is chasing him, him. And that his life, he actually experienced that God was pursuing him constantly, but he he was resisting God constantly. He He felt God chasing him. And he didn't want anything to do with God. He didn't want to surrender. He didn't want to let him in. He knew, he knew it would change his life. He knew it would just transform. He, he was not interested. So he ran. He fled. He fled to other things. He sought to be satisfied by other things. And eventually, towards the end of the poem, he describes in his life of coming to a place of surrender, of actually letting go and receiving God's love, letting go and, and, and submitting to the pursuit and, and letting him in. This guy, Josh Butler, talks about this, this poem and describes it this way, just commenting on the poem. He says, I like to think Thompson chose this title because like a hound closing in on a rabbit, God's reckless love is on the prowl, willing to crash through our distance, crush down our idols to get to our hearts. God's divine grace bears down upon us, calling us to turn and receive his love. You see, the repentance is is changing and turning, receiving his love. He says, as his footsteps draw closer, the sound of his voice breaks through the silence and the light of his encroaching presence begins to pierce the darkness. The question then we are faced with is not whether we've been good enough, jumped high enough or sought hard enough. The question is, do we want to be found? Saying the framework is not, have we done it right? Have we got it together? Have we fixed it? The question is, will we let him find us? Will we stop resisting him? Will we let him in? Maybe for the first time, or maybe in a deeper way, um, in, in, in a hundred or thousandth time, that, we, that we, we surrender in deeper places. And I suppose as we, as we respond tonight and we kind of finish um, this series on repentance, is really a good question to, to think. That maybe, um, maybe you've never actually believed in Jesus. Or you've kind of been around the church or maybe you're here for the first time and, and you've kind of heard about this God and what he's like and maybe even thought that actually it's about getting your act together and you've got you to do the right thing. But actually you're hearing that actually, well, no, he, he's pursuing me. He's, he's calling me. And maybe he's even calling you tonight and actually calling you to respond and trust and receive his love. It's that he's seeking and he has good and he is jealous and actually our job is to give up. Our job is to let go. Our job is to receive, is to welcome him, is to let him in. And he will transform us if we let him in. He will change us. It's, it's a radical thing. But it's, it's not that we have to get it together, it's that we let go. And maybe that's, that's you tonight. It's, not, it's even an opportunity to come and to believe and to trust him. Well, maybe you've, you've done that and you, you believe him, but there's parts of yourself, parts of ourselves that, that we know that, that we resist him. Or maybe we're not even aware of that we resist him. And we kind of like the idea of God and we kind of like 
being around him, in, but then he might bring something to the attention or call us to let go of something, and it's like, don't go there. We're not interested in that. That's too difficult. That's too hard. But he does that because he's jealous for us and because he loves us. And he doesn't just, just like want us found in a little bit, but found completely, completely restored to him, completely healed, completely changed, free and trusting him. And, and often he's pursuing us and he wants us to let go and hold on to him. But we're holding on to other things. We're holding on to other gods, other idols, other things that we want to trust in or find control in or find life in. And he, he will pursue us. And what he wants is for us to let go of those things. Let them go, the false ideas, the false beliefs about God, the false beliefs about ourselves, the false identities, the, the things that we look to and trust in apart from he wants us to let them go and, and recognize the depths of his love and who he is and trust and rest in him alone. And we see that as we come to communion and, and, and we remember Jesus' sacrifice on the cross in that, that that's his heart, that Jesus is the better brother that would go all the way to the cross even though we resist him, even though we, we rebel against him, even though we ignore him, he would come and die for us that we could be forgiven and restored. It's that kind of love he has. And he calls us to let go and trust that love. Let it transform us and start to follow and trust in him afresh. So we're going to respond with, with communion. And we kind of just want to make some space um, tonight to, to really engage with God. Um, we might even just play, play some music. And um, yeah, I just invite you even now just to... I, kind of, I guess when we're sort of listening to a sermon, you might, you're kind of in thinking mode, like engagement mode, reading mode. I encourage you to kind of change modes a bit um, and, and maybe become a bit more aware of God's presence. Um, just sort of slow down a little bit. And even just ask yourself this question. Do, do I want to be found? Maybe I've been found, but in a, in a deeper way, in a, in a whole way. And maybe just allow God to even bring things to mind that maybe, maybe other things that we're holding on to. Maybe lies that we believed about him. Maybe even that, that, that lie that we have to have it together. We've got, we've got to have everything together. We've got to sort it out. It's on us. And actually maybe he's asking us to just let go of that lie. And actually realize it's, it's on him. And our job is to trust him and rest in him. Or maybe it's, it's, I've got to protect myself. I've got to look after myself. I've got to provide for myself. And actually, no, it's on him. He's the father. We're the child. <laughs> He's the one who provides. He's the one who protects. He's the one who leads. He's the one who made us. He's the one who owns us. He's the one who belongs to us. We belong to him. He bought us by his blood. We come back to that place. Maybe there's other things that you sort of just know that maybe the Holy Spirit's even just pointing on and, and, and calling out and you sort of are aware. And, and even though it's scary, maybe tonight is even an opportunity just to actually really intentionally lay that thing down, actually let it go and grab onto Him. Um, and we're going to respond and have communion. Um, when you feel ready, come forward. Um, if you believe 
in this God and Jesus come and take the biscuit and dip it in the juice, his body and, and his blood and, and go back to your seat and, and respond or find a space around the room. And if there is something that's really coming up tonight um, or if you just like prayer, I really encourage you to, to maybe respond with the next step, an, an active step. Um, maybe come and if you just come and sit down in one of the chairs in the front and, and someone can come and pray for you. Um, or you maybe even come forward and kneel as a sign of surrender. Um, and sometimes even just being able to do that with somebody else, um, if there is something that, that God's really highlighting, just to be able to even name it with somebody else or ask someone else to pray for it, can be really powerful and God can really work in that, in that space. So I just encourage you to respond to God in this, this time. Um, that He is good, that He is jealous, that, that this is real and true, these are not just words, um, and, and to step in and actually believe that, that, that this is who He is, and we can trust Him. So I'm going to pray, and then, and then we can respond. I just encourage you to stay in that place of responding to whatever He's doing. Yeah, God, you are, you are far better than we could imagine that you seek us, that you pursue us, that you would even die for us, um, that it's not that we've done the right thing, God, it's not that we deserve anything, but it's just that your love is so great and your mercy is so great and you are so good and you've shown your goodness and your grace and your kindness Yet, God, we can be so afraid. We can find it so hard to trust. Maybe we've been hurt before. We've been let down. Um, it's, it sometimes sounds too good to be true, that, that, that this is really who you are. And, Father, we just ask for faith um, to believe you, um, to trust you. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would even speak to our hearts that we would know that this is truly who you are, that you really are like this. You really are the one who pursues, who is active. You really are the one who died for us, who is with us, who surrounds us, who, who fills us with your presence and your spirit. And Jesus, we just ask that you just reveal the ways that we resist you and call us back to a place of trust in you. And we just say we're sorry, Lord, for when we resist your love, that love, that great love, when we go our own way rather than your way, when we do it in our own strength rather than your strength, when you're right there with us and you're jealous and you're full of grace and mercy. So would you lead us by your Spirit tonight? Just Holy Spirit, us, you would bring freedom and life in your name. And God, will we be found in deeper and deeper ways by you? Because you, you are jealous and you want us to be with you. That's what you want. And God, we just surrender to that, we pray.